when you invest, you are investing to create benefits for other people, for communities, for different generations, right? It's about creating economic and societal value. Hi, I'm Jessica Robinson, and I'm founder of Moxie Future, a platform for engaging with women in sustainable and responsible investing. And I'm also the author of Financial Feminism, a woman's guide to investing for a sustainable future. And you're listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T. Hi, everyone. Maria here, and welcome to season two of Gut Talks, double G, U, double T a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, running GUT, WGUWT, a design and innovation hub. I'm releasing 30 episodes per season. So now, after 30 episodes and 35 guests, we're starting the countdown again from scratch with season number two. And I invite you to check season one's episodes as the content and guests are awesome. Well, I'll let you judge on that one yourself, but I believe there's lots of valuable information and conversations out there. Our guest today is Jessica Robinson, who's an expert in sustainable finance, responsible investing, ESGs, climate finance, working on women empowerment. She's the founder of Monksy Future Platform to engage and empower female investors and wrote a book called Financial Feminism, A Woman's Guide to Investing for a Sustainable Future. She lived in the UK, in Beijing, in New York, many places actually. So you're going to tell us about that, Jessica, as well. And she's currently based in Dubai. Jessica, thank you so much for being here. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I know we got introduced. Yeah. And I like your cat behind you. So (laughs) there's going to be a 10 minute teaser on YouTube. So I invite everyone to see the cat. What's the name of the cat? This one's called Squid. I've also got another one called Shrimp and Freddy. My children keep bringing home stray cats and we seem to be adopting them. I've also got two adopted dogs as well. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Wow. So we need to add animal lover <laughs> and you adopt so many. Okay, cool. So I also want to give credit to the RFI network. And we had Blake Good, the CEO, on episode 12. Stuart Hutton and Pierre Lazlou told me to have you on Gut Talk. So I'm really happy to have you here. So who's Jessica? Uh, she's a little tired today, for sure. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, so I have lived all over the world, as you said, I'm I'm from the UK, as you can probably tell by my funny British accent, but I I left the UK many, many years ago. I lived in New York for a while, then Beijing and then Hong Kong, and then I'm now in the UAE in Dubai. So I've been overseas for around 20 years. I like to call myself a global citizen. I'm very much in sustainable finance, responsible investing, something that I moved into about 15 years ago. So it makes me somewhat of an old timer in this field because obviously it's still relatively in its infancy but I really got into about 15 years ago when I became fascinated with what was happening in terms of climate and the environment so I'm an economist by background and decided to start thinking through what the financial and capital markets are doing on environmental and climate issues and that's really expanded my fascination with gender and sort of female empowerment is very much that I believe we have a long way to go and I have a sort of a need to make my contribution in some way. I also have two teenage daughters. So we talk about 
women, female equality in many conversations. And when it comes to money and wealth, I think there's a lot of conversations still to be had because women are very much facing challenges. And this is a global phenomenon. It's not just a sort of Western thing or an Asian thing. It's something that we're seeing happen all over the world. And how did you find this gap and how did you decide to move forward with that with women empowerment? So, so my day job is very much working with governments, regulators, financial institutions on sustainable finance. So I've had various roles running think tanks as a consultant, strategic advisor. And one thing I noticed about maybe it was about six years ago, I'd speak at a lot of conferences and, you know, mainstream financial conferences. And so often women would come up to me afterwards and say, look, this concept of sustainable investing is really important. What can I do in my personal wealth? So I started researching and there wasn't a lot of analysis out there, but what was there was this concept of women thinking about societal and environmental impact when they make investment decisions. Now we see this in consumer consumerism and we see this in other aspects of lives. So I decided to undertake some global research. We interviewed women in Germany, the US, Australia, the UK and China really to understand the sort of motivation that women have when they think about, right, I want to invest in a fund or I have this wealth and I want to do this with it. And the findings were very consistent across each country. Women are highly motivated to think about impact. And at the same time, you've got this challenge around sort of financial equality. So we know I mean, obviously, there's been a huge amount of attention given to the gender pay gap, but there are many other financial gaps that women face. So gender investing gap right? Women are simply not putting enough money into investing. So it's ending up with them being in a shortfall when they come to retirement. And that's compounded by the fact that women actually live a lot longer. And so there are many different aspects to this financial inequality that we face. You know, we know about the pink tax, you know, women paying more for feminine hygiene products. You know, there's evidence that women even pay more for certain kinds of debt. And so when you sort of put those things together, this concept of financial equality for women with this notion that women genuinely care about positive impacts when they make decisions with their wealth. And to me, that's really what financial feminism's all about. It's how do we empower women to think about money and then invest to build a world in which they want to live, to sort of invest much more consciously. I like the process, actually, how you started. It came about when women started asking you, what do I do? What can I do? You know, seeing you as a role model as well. And when you decided to go deeper into that and do some research, did you trust your gut in saying, all right, there is an opportunity here and, and I want to do something about it? Yes, absolutely. I did. Absolutely. And I remain totally committed to my belief that women really genuinely care about how we construct our world. And this comes back to this, you know, we talk about money and money is a social construct. It's not a means to an end. It's genuinely a way to design the world we want to live in, to allocate resources. And women do are very much committed to this. And yes, that is a gut instinct for me because, you know, as I said, I've lived all over the world and I see this consistently. And so I think, you know, this notion that we can empower women to say, I want to do this with my money. A little bit of it's for me is a sort of pushback on the financial industry, which is so male dominated. And to me, and I, this is sort of the advocacy 
part that I like to play. We need to change our financial markets. We need to change the way we allocate money. You know, I often say if you're investing in a company, right, who wants to invest in a company that that supply chains are not transparent? They may be employing child labor that has a huge environmental footprint, right? It's time that we as women say, no, that's not good enough, right? And this isn't about philanthropy. It's not about charity. It's about making financial returns. But at the same time, it's saying, okay, I want to invest sustainably because this is my value framework. And this is the world in which I want to live. And you say that women can invest without having a lot of money. Mm. How can they get started? So, yes. And this is a tricky question because, you know, five years ago, it wasn't easy. And I sometimes tell the story. I bank with a global bank, right? Because I have lived all over the world. And I called them. I had some money sitting in my bank. And I said, look, why has no one called me to talk me through investment options? And I said, and by the way, I'm only looking at sustainable investing. And, and basically the man on the phone said, I'm sorry, we can only talk to you about this if you have at least 2 million US dollars in assets. And I remember thinking like, this is crazy. Then I really, you know, what we're seeing with fintech, right, is that we're democratizing access to investing. So at the same time, we can also bring in sustainable investing. So we have a lot of investment platforms that are now coming online where you can actually select different sustainable investment funds. You can almost do thematic investing. And a lot of this actually requires only small amounts. So, you know, fintech has really transformed this dynamic. And I think the more we tap into that democratization, the better, because then it really is closely aligned with sustainable investing, because it's all around getting everybody to be proactive with their money and sort of not be dictated by the big investment industry. So this leads me to that question. How do you trust that the place, I'm going to use very simple words, the place where you want to deposit your money or invest is being transparent by telling you, yes, it is like the whole supply chain is transparent for you yeah. to see. This is very tricky. And this is also, I talk about this a lot in, in my book around this whole concept of greenwashing. I do worry a lot that where you sort of you think you're investing in a fund and again I, I talk about this as another example when I was investing in my monetary my Hong Kong mandatory pension fund and I, I selected the green fund and then two years later I looked into what it was holding and actually it was holding the biggest shareholding was in a large U.S. investments bank which obviously from a carbon perspective because it's a bank right its footprint's fairly minimal but that bank was actually financing coal developments in Southeast Asia. So, you know, so it was completely opposite to what I thought I was investing in. So I think things are getting a lot, lot better. There's a lot of work happening, particularly in the European Union on taxonomies and, and transparency, but I think we have some way to go. That in itself doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I think we need to ask questions as individuals. So if we decide to invest in a fund, go to the fund manager ask what they're actually doing. What is their ESG policy? You know, are those asset managers signatories to various organizations such as the Principles for Responsible Investment? So you do have to do a bit of your due diligence. And I also think this is why NGOs are so important because they're shining a spotlight on where there isn't transparency or where there is greenwashing happening. So I, I just be aware of it, but at the same time, don't let it stop you because it, it is getting better. That's another like concept because you have banks, for example, who say, yeah, we support specific causes and ESG and whatever. And then, then you see like 
they're some of the major investors in fossil fuels and whatever. So what yeah. can you do about this? You know, it's, yeah. it's tough. So you I saying, think, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, and then I do cover this quite a bit in my book, sort of looking at the different tools that are out there that can help you analyze. So there are a number of organizations that break down funds. You know, if you take, for example, BankTrack, they do a lot of work on really shining a spotlight on what these banks are up to. Because I think, and that's where I think the individual's voice is so critical. You know, we shouldn't just be told, oh, it's a green fund, right? We have to do our legwork and make sure that we know that actually what's going on, right? Yeah, and this is, I think this is key because today with social media and so on, if you just know how to manipulate the system, you can just say whatever you want. This is why the power of different voices can support and building communities around it. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what you're doing. You're bringing women together to think in a different way. I want to ask you as well, what do you think about blockchain and cryptos in general? And are you actively involved in that space? Okay, this is a very personal perspective. I'm not actively involved. I think it smacks of gambling and male-driven testosterone need to make <laughs> money. But as I said, that's a personal perspective. Yeah, I, yeah. I will always come back to the point, which is when you invest, you are investing to create benefits for other people for communities for different generations right it's about creating economic and societal value i still don't understand how crypto is doing that and when i see the behavioral trends of the market and how individual investors are sort of yeah it's gambling right to me it does worry me but the blockchain itself as a oh, in terms of blockchain right i think it's a phenomenal development that we still have to figure out how to harness um, and, you know, we've seen some really, I've been involved in companies where we're looking at blockchain and how we use it to support the growth of carbon markets. So there are great uses, but when it comes to sort of this whole, more the sort of the trading, the Bitcoin stuff, I'm less yeah. positive. <laughs> yeah, it, it is still controversial. It can also be seen like for the rich to get richer, right? So, or, uh, so we don't know. So what's the difference in the investing mindset and culture when it comes to sustainable and responsible finance what do you mean in terms of the people working or, or sort of the ambition or yeah the ambition actually so you have just investing but if you want to take it to the next step and to what you do there are different ways to look at it and obviously if i talk sort of with the institutional side so the work my day work you know it's about actually understanding the risks that we now face because i think 10 years ago even in the early days people just the sort of fixation on financial return without any regard for environmental costs or societal costs. That's fundamentally shifted because I think, particularly if you look at climate change, there is a recognition that climate change is not just an issue because of the world in which we live. It's actually a massive financial risk as we transition to a low carbon future. From an individual perspective, I think the dynamic is shifting from, okay, I want to make financial returns from my investment decisions because I want to build for the future or for retirement. But at the same time, I want to ensure that those investments I do are A, reducing any of the risks associated with environment and society, and B, actually seeking out opportunities associated with what the future might look like. So I talk a lot about the sustainable development goals in my book, because that's sort of the closest thing we have to a global strategy. So if you're thinking from an investor perspective, right? what will the world look like in the future? Well, the sustainable development goals in theory give us a framework for what we're aiming for for 2030. So if you're looking at it from an investor perspective, you're thinking, 
okay, that's the future I'm investing for, right? Whether that's on things like water, clean sanitation, smart cities, climate, gender equality. You know, if you think about that's the ambition of the world, which it is because everyone's signed up for it, right? We've spent a lot of time working on the SDGs. Well, then as an individual, if I want to have successful financial return, that's where I want to be looking as well. And I just think, you know, I talk about investing more consciously. I think it's being aware of what's going on in the world and feeling empowered to use your voice and not feeling like you're just a sort of cog in the wheel of the finance industry. You can actually say, this matters to me, or I feel this is wrong. You know, you mentioned fossil fuels before. I mean, I, I really proactively try to keep everything out of fossil fuels. Like to me, it's a no brainer, right? I say that sitting in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> But again, why not? If you're at the core of the thing, right? And you know, change happens from understanding where the issue is coming from. I'm not saying yeah. the Middle East is the issue, but I mean, I'm yeah. from the Middle East, right? So <laughs> in a certain way. I think that's interesting because having spent so long in Asia, And I started at a time where people just did not understand. I mean, even China, right? When mm -hmm. I was in Beijing, it was all about grow now, think about the consequences later, right? And, but the consequences happened much more quickly than people realized, the air pollution, the water pollution. And let's face it, what's happening today, we are very much seeing the impact of climate change. Yeah. So Asia had to move pretty quickly. Well, certainly China moved quite quickly. And I think the Middle East... There's an inevitability that's going to have to happen in the Middle East, right? They're going to have to diversify out of yeah. oil. I mean, it's just a reality. We cannot take all those oil reserves out of the ground because we know we've, we know what our carbon budget is. If we take them all out of the ground, we're all going to be ravished by rising temperatures, rising sea levels. So I think that shift in intelligent thinking definitely happens. And I suspect the next couple of years in this region is going to be quite interesting. You're tapping into, I'm just going to take a step back based on what you're saying, because you're tapping a lot into systems thinking in a certain way and, and design thinking, which is basically how we shouldn't approach a challenge. We have to understand what is the core of the problem and ask the right questions and not jump into what you're saying, solutions. And we think about the problem after, because then if you think in terms of impact, but not only that, in terms of budget and in terms of money what happens you go develop all these things and then you ruin it somewhere else or you just fix a small problem and then you create a huge one elsewhere so this is why where like systems thinking design thinking comes into play in a certain way because you would focus on what's happening what's the reality of things and how it could develop and test different things before going and implementing them I'm an economist and I think of things um, through, so where we're challenged, and this is one of the things that's very hard to translate to people who don't think in these terms, but clean air, for example, mm -hmm. there is a cost to be associated with protecting our air or our water, right? And the fact is our economic systems, our capital markets have simply not priced in those costs. We've only sort of priced in like, what's the financial return now today? So part of the work that we have to do is design systems to start giving us a price indicator for things like clean air. And so I'm quite a proponent about carbon markets because it's about creating a market that puts a price on greenhouse gas emissions and therefore it incentivizes companies to reduce 
and actually countries as well. It disincentivizes companies to sort of create more emissions, right? So you're using a market tool to price something that hasn't been priced before. And I think we need to do more thinking on how that can be implemented and not just on carbon, on things like water. You know, you could extend it right the way across any sort of environmental good or service, I think. That's interesting. And it's just taking my brain elsewhere here, but you're talking about value. And today with the rise of the NFTs, right, the new buzzword and so on, we're giving value to things that are valuable or not, but they're, it's very, very volatile when things like, you know, air you're talking about. I mean, it's something that you can't even value. It's just important for our survival in that yeah. sense. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's just interesting the way the world is heading actually because you're thinking in a different way yeah and i think you know one of the interesting things is you know here we sit in 2021 reflecting back on the last year or so and i think that the pandemic has actually for some of us has actually realized i mean how much more important it is to think about you know what is the next pandemic or you know the big next global event and i think most of us know anyone who's in climate change know that that's around the corner and actually climate change is going to and is already causing way more deaths and inequality than the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. So if anything, you know, we need to be more enlightened and say, look, what have we just learned from the last year? Well, these are global events that have ripple effects right away across the world. And, but it doesn't happen equally. There are, there are countries and societies that, that are suffering so much more than others, right? And so we have to think about ways to manage that and then use our financial systems to assign value to certain goals that we have. And to your point, Maria, about value, how do we, because it is quite a um, a nebulous concept, but we can use the tools that we have. And that's maybe me again, being an economist, thinking about it, you know, assign value to healthy living, even happiness, right? All of these things are aspirations that I think we all need to think more deeply about. Yeah, I want to touch on what you mentioned about the pandemic. And I'm going to give a silly example. But as we're recording this today, yesterday, Italy won the Euro final against England. And if you look at the 75,000 fans unmasked all over the place, and then you look at the dancers who were there for the opening ceremony, they were jumping, sweating, entertaining everyone. There was some distance between one and the other one, and they were all masked. So this is just a silly example to see, okay, what's happening? Like, how are our brains functioning and rewired to see like people on top of each other in thousands? And then if you like less than a hundred, maybe, I don't get it. And again, what's happening in Europe and the developed countries and what's happening in the emerging countries where look at India alone, for sure, lots of things happen, but India had issues before the pandemic anyway. So can I say one thing that's really riling me at the moment? is I turn on the news and all we hear is Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos racing to get up to space. And you know what annoys me is we have these billionaires spending billions and billions and billions to what I see as a male vanity project when the earth is burning, right? When we've got yeah. new mothers who, who die in childbirth because they got, haven't got access to basic healthcare. We've got children who can't go to school. You know, I cannot, when we talk about value, I cannot understand why we're not asking simple questions, which is why is this important for a billionaire to 
spend a day in space when we've got all of these problems, including climate change. I cannot seem to reconcile a bit like you were saying, you know, watching yesterday with the, the football and the dichotomy of what's happening. Yeah, I think this is, it goes back to human greed and power in a certain way. I mean, I was 17 and I had a philosophy class and that was the exact topic. Should we send people to space mm. or should we? But it's the same thing. How much money do we spend as humans, right? Not you and I, <laughs> with countries on weapons, mass destruction weapons. That's another thing, right? So I guess let's not get into that conversation. We'll become too philosophical here, well, I guess. But... That, that comes back to my, my point about sustainable investing. And, mm -hmm. and one of the reasons why I wrote the book was very much around, I just want to plant the seed in the reader's mind that we can make different choices with our wealth and our money. And I talk about levers of change and we have many levers of change, but investing and wealth is one of those. And it doesn't matter how small it is or how much it is, right? It's a way to articulate what matters to you. And I think that sense of empowerment is really important. Ad break. No, not an ad. But as you may have noticed, this show has no sponsors. But you can still support Gut Talks by leaving five stars or a comment on your podcast player. And like, share and follow the social media channels of Gut. W-G-U-T. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get going. Yeah, I want to touch on that too, because you're talking about women. But before that, what do you think the role of universities is in today's day and age? How are they planting a seed of thought into mm. the new generation? So, well, you're talking to someone who's, I've got three degree university degrees. <laughs> yeah, me too, in design, though, fully. No, I'm not. And, yeah. I'm actually, I think my, one of my daughters said to me the other day, I'm not going to go to university. And I'm like, yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I'm a believer in that learning is continual. Um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, this morning I'm doing a certificate in finance just because I love to continually learn. I think universities, so I think they're really important. I think they're an important stepping stone for young people. I do think we need to think a little more deeply about the practicality or the value that's being created. But I have to say, my father, when I went off to university, my first degree, he actually said to me, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this. He actually said to me, Jess, I don't care what degree you come out with. Just go and have a really good time. <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> so he always viewed, he views education as sort of a much more well-rounded sort of thing. You know, it's yeah. not just the grade you come out with. It's the experiences that you have and what you then do with it. And so I do yeah. think, I think there's a bit of soul searching because obviously we have to figure out how to pay for these universities as well, right? There's one thing here, you know, because the education system and whatever has been a bit disrupted because of the pandemic. But one thing I was telling my students a few months ago when I was teaching them, I was like, take advantage of being here and having the university open because this is the value, the people you are with today. The rest you can learn online. I mean, I'm an advocate of being there physically if you want to learn because you learn so much from different people and different cultures. But online, you can learn a lot too. But my question also was like, are universities or just schools in general, not just universities, taking us into a specific thought process that is not working or working today? And how big is or how important is 
especially in the financial education and the economics, or how much importance is given to ESGs, sustainability, and so on. So I think that's actually, the reason I find that very interesting is because I've been having a similar thought process with my elder two children of 14 and 15, and they've had a very international education. They both speak fluent Mandarin. They're now at, at an international school here in Dubai. My concern, and I know the school is making an effort to talk about sustainability and SDGs, but they're still not progressive enough in terms of inspiring these young people to make change happen. We're still very rigid in our approach to education. And I think that's really hard when you're trying to raise kids and when they go to university, you know, you're trying to jump through hoops to enable them to then have choices. But at the same time, you want them to be free thinkers and game changers. So I think it is, it is very, very difficult actually. You know, I do, again, I say to my girls, you don't need to get straight A's, but I get their report cards and I'm like, there's a few too many B's and C's in there because I was educated to think success looked like straight A's, right? Yeah. Which it doesn't. <laughs> so how do you measure success then when you talk to or when you work with women and when you work with companies? So it's very much about impact. And now when I take on any projects, so any of my strategic work or consulting work, when I take on any projects, I really think through what is the positive impact or the, the effect on change that I'm going to have. It's not the money I'm paid or it's not the sort of the publicity that's gained or whatever. It's right. How is that change going to happen? And then you need to also ensure you're working with the right people, because a lot of particularly in the sustainable finance space, there's still a lot of fascination with public declarations or statements. You know, this PR marketing piece, which I just don't have the time or energy to do now, because I think, you know, climate changes, the clock is ticking. And so I want to spend my time and my expertise and my experience really ensuring that I have, I'm actually changing the way people think about things and actually taking action on that as well. But I think success is a peculiar one, isn't it? In terms of generation, I think that's different as well. You know, when I was younger, the whole concept of being an entrepreneur didn't really exist. Whereas now being an entrepreneur is a really exciting thing, right? And also it's where you can have positive impact. So I think that sort of shift of, how we value things and what matters to us you know one area that i'm really involved in is gender lens investing so seeking out female founders and investing my money in these female founded businesses and to me that's been one of the most rewarding rewarding activities that i do outside of my work is actually seeing these phenomenal women set up amazing businesses and invariably those businesses have some kind of societal or social impact right because women are always looking to solve problems so, you know, I, a couple of the companies I'm invested in, like ed tech, health tech, women are thinking, okay, what sort of societal problem, what is the business solution? How do I deliver on that? So I think that's, for me, I felt a great deal of, I found that very rewarding, actually. And you're giving them confidence in that sense. So how did you meet those women actually in the first place and, and how did you end up investing in them? Because you do lots of things with different communities of women yeah. and entrepreneurship programs and stuff like that. So actually, and it's quite funny because you know, this thing about women and money, we have this quite difficult relationship. And as someone who's been in the finance and investment industry, most of their career, even I have a low level of confidence when it comes to allocating my personal wealth. So when I moved to the UAE, I joined it was an organization called the Women's Angel Investor Network. And we started, we worked as a team. There was, I think, about 
25 of us in, the, in that capital raise. And we were all kind of like learning from each other and building each other's confidence. And so we started looking at these different companies and we were all doing the sharing the due diligence work. For me, that was phenomenal because it built my confidence. And then sort of that snowballed. I now invested in a couple of gender lens VC funds. I do some mentoring and helping with female founders, you know, but that's been a four year journey. Right. And I do, I'm very open. When I started that, my confidence was, you know, it's like, well, how am I going to make the right decisions? But I think that's reflective of a lot of women because I don't know. I don't know why, why, I mean, I think there are, well, it's complex why women may have less confidence or, you know, a lot of women just think, have this self-perception, oh, I'm not an investor. Right. And I talk about Sometimes I think when you look at the way that the media portrays men and women when it comes to personal finance, it's very different. So there's some great studies around how we talk to women about saving, being cautious with their money, saving for a new handbag. And then men, it's sort of these very brave images about be brave, financial success when you invest, you know. So it's kind of almost like not surprising that women have a different approach or maybe not that confident when it comes to money and personal finance because we don't really talked about it by mainstream media and advertising. You know, when I was getting ready for this podcast, so I was doing my research and there are two words that if you want highlighted, one of them is obviously confidence and empowerment that you mentioned, but another one that wasn't mentioned, but it's empathy. I think you can empathize with lots of women and women can, and this makes a difference as well. Let me know if I'm right or wrong in that no, sense. Right. But... I think, and I think you're right. And I, I say this anecdotally, you know, when I mentioned the women that come up to me when I speak. And honestly, since the book came out in February, I have so many beautiful messages from women all over the world saying, oh, I've been looking for a book like this, or I feel so inspired. Or I think that, that there's an, a sort of acknowledgement that women, we do understand, we are empathetic and, and we want to work together. And I think, you know, we talk about the sisterhood. I think it's incredibly powerful. So the work I, I mentioned with the Angel Network here, you know, that's where I met some of my, some really good friends. I'm in a room of professional women and we're all wanting to make a difference. And there's nothing better than, than that. I mean, the one thing I should just add here is when I wrote the book, quite a lot of people say, why did you write a book for women? And I say, you know, sustainable investing is not only for women, not at all. It's for everybody, right? We all have to think about the impact of our investment decisions. However, we do have evidence that women care about impact. We also know that they feel slightly disengaged from the financial industry. So the book is very much trying to address some of those barriers, some of those issues or challenges that women may face. And, you know, the end result being she puts the book down and she says, I mean, this is my ambition. It's like, okay, I feel like I understand more. I now have the confidence to go to my bank, to go to a financial advisor, to talk to my partner and really start to think about how I can make a difference with my investment decisions. And that's very much the ambition of the book. Yeah, I wanted to ask you actually what made you write the book. I ordered it, by the way, so oh, good. Not from well, the UK. You know, it's, I mean, the book, the whole financial feminism, it, it's a hobby for me. Obviously, I have to earn money to pay <laughs> for my children. But writing the book was just, it was such a phenomenal experience. I loved it because I've been carrying a lot of it in my head for ages. Um, and given what I do professionally, obviously the content. But the way I wrote the book was very chatty, very accessible. So it's almost 
like my friends will often say when they're reading the book, it's like, I can imagine you reading it to me, Jess. It's kind of in your voice. Wow. Okay. That's a really good compliment, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be linking it. it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Lots of people do read, I mean, listen to audiobooks. Yeah, uh, no, I know. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I have two more questions for you. What is the world you dream of? Um, very much to do with inequality, because I think that transcends through everything. You know, I mentioned the billionaires going to space. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to, to revalue what matters. And I think we need to use whatever tools we have to do that, to drive better equality across the world. And I come back to the pandemic. Right. It really highlights the inequality that exists across our world. And it's it's just not right. And so for me, my vision would be greater equality across, you know, across opportunities, across wealth, across living in a safe, happy, healthy, unpolluted environment. And I feel that we're really not using our financial markets to deliver on that. And I, I come back to financial markets because that's my skill set, you know, economics and business. And I think that, so my vision is, is actually restructuring what we, the tools that we have. And I think that's going to require some very deep philosophical thoughts and discussions, which is also why we need more women at the table, because women are likely to drive those discussions, right? Okay, so you kind of portrayed your ideal world. Is there anything you've done in your life where you did completely the opposite and you wished you did it differently? I think probably this is quite a personal thing. I think one of the toughest things for me is choosing to live and work all around the world and raise my family overseas because it then puts you in a situation like I really believe in raising my children as global citizens. I want them to be game changers in the world. And that requires, you know, as I said, they speak Mandarin, they're learning Arabic, they've lived in Asia, now they're in the Middle East. So I really want them to, you know, and I think I said at the beginning of my book, in my sort of dedication to them, it's your sole job in life is to make the world better than when you arrived. So that I try and instill in them. But the challenge is, they're a privileged elite, right? And it's very hard to be able to sort of lead by example when you're an expat. And it's, I find that quite, for me, it's a very challenging aspect of how to raise a happy, healthy family in the kind of environment that I want them to be. But as a, how would I do things differently? I don't know. I'm still feeling my way. <laughs> no, cool. Is there anything you would like to add, by the way? I really enjoyed our conversation. So... I mean, Anything we didn't touch on? I mean, I think the, the thing about sort of the book and the work that I do on Moxie Future, which is, is really about trying to educate women, is that I do think that this is about creating some kind of movement, sort of really trying to push for change by working together. You know, you've mentioned community a few times, and I think we have an opportunity to build communities now that we're so much more comfortable with Zoom and using online communication. Um, and so my sort of call to action is really to anyone that reads the book, anyone that thinks about sustainable investing is that I think we can build a movement that's very proactive on an individual level. And we don't have to wait to be told what to do. I think we can actually take the first step ourselves. Yeah, actually, if you said most many women, you received so many heartwarming messages from women, you can also put them in touch together and build your community around them because they can all help each other. So, yeah. no, thank you so much. And if anyone wants to find you, where would that be? Uh, so if you go to, well, LinkedIn, I really am proactive on LinkedIn is probably my mm -hmm. easiest thing. So 
Jessica Amy Robinson. And on my website, moxiefuture.com, there's a list, if you wanted to buy the book, there's a list of all the online retailers, including Amazon, which I really should push back on, given my view on... Uh... <laughs> well, that's where I ordered it from. But... <laughs> well, I know, you know, the thing is, it's an inevitability, but it's not great for writers. Amazon is mm. not great for writers. <laughs> Yeah, they're great for themselves, for sure. It's just easier for the consumer, I think. I know, That's yeah. the thing. And no one can beat yeah. them at that. So, no, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. This is the end of this episode with Jessica Robinson. We had an awesome conversation, touching on multiple subjects and subjects that matter, that we do not necessarily know about such as why women should and can invest. And if you're investing, regardless of the gender, make sure that what you're investing in is green. Do your research and don't assume that everything is green, even if you're told so. Thank you very much. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.